Earlier this week, Twitter added a fact-check label to two Trump posts that made unsubstantiated claims about mail-in voting. Trump responded with an executive order on Thursday that aims to curb some of the legal protections social media sites have regarding content. My executive order calls for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to make it that social media companies that engage in censoring or any political conduct will not be able to keep their liability shield. Undeterred, Twitter flagged a Trump tweet on Friday for violating its rules against glorifying violence. My guest is noted First Amendment expert Eugene Volokh, a professor at UCLA Law School. Eugene, explain the liability protections that Twitter and other platforms get under Section 230. Sure. So let's say that somebody publishes something in a newspaper that libels me. I can sue the newspaper. And that's true even if this is a letter to the editor. The newspaper is liable as a publisher for things that it prints. Now, what if someone libels me in a book that's sold through a bookstore? Well, in that kind of situation, I could sue the bookstore, but it has certain protections. It's treated as a distributor. So I basically have to put it on notice first that the book is libelous. I have to tell it it's libelous and explain why that's so. And at that point, if the bookstore keeps it up, I can sue. Then there's a third question. What if somebody libels me over the telephone? Even, let's say, back when they were answering machine messages, in an outgoing answering machine message, if people call this number, they say something libelous about me. You might call that a platform rather than a publisher or distributor. The telephone company is completely immune from liability. Likewise, let's say somebody libels me in email, and then I call up Google and say, Gmail messages are being used to libel me. Please cancel that account. Google is also immune from liability and would be even in the absence of any federal statute. So in 1996, Congress said that online service and content providers should be treated like platforms, not like publishers, like newspapers, not like distributors, like bookstores, but kind of like the telephone company or an email system. They should be completely immune from liability from things that other people post. That's why, for example, I can have comments on my blog without fearing that I could be sued anytime somebody posts something supposedly libelous in a comment. And that is true even if this online service or content provider does some screening, either some screening or some after-the-fact removal. So I'm going to be immune from liability for comments that people post, even if I occasionally delete some comments that I think are highly vulgar or personally insulting, or for that matter, I think they might be libelous. So then is Twitter within its rights to fact-check a Trump post with a link or to even delete it? So you asked two questions. One has to do with adding links for fact-checking purposes, and that is pure exercise of First Amendment rights. It's Twitter speaking. It's not Twitter blocking speech. It's Twitter responding to speech with speech of its own. Indubitably, Twitter has a right to do that and won't have a right to do that even without federal Section 230. Second question is, what if Twitter deletes some posts? That, too, is within its rights under Section 230. It might also be part of its First Amendment rights. You could argue that just like a newspaper has the right to refuse to publish something, Twitter should have the right to delete things as well. That's a little bit of a closer call. But certainly under Section 230, Twitter is indeed allowed to do that. And what's more, it's not like there's some law out there that says service providers must be even-handed in their actions with regard to post or cannot delete any post. Even in the absence of Section 230, there wouldn't be any statute or any common law principle that requires Twitter to host everything, just like there's no rule that says a bookstore has to distribute every book that people ask it to distribute. Uh, But in any event, uh, when it comes to Twitter's uh, actual responses to posts, That's something that's fully protected by the First Amendment. 
There has been criticism of Twitter for fact-checking the president on election matters, but not taking down recent tweets by the president that baselessly accused MSNBC host Joe Scarborough. Are they using different standards? Well, surely there ought to be a different standard for deciding when to take something down as opposed to deciding when to simply respond to it. So if they say, you know, we're going to respond to something, that doesn't block any speech to the public. It doesn't limit spe- limit the marketplace of ideas. It adds to the marketplace of ideas. Removing posts is something that, that's a more serious matter. Now, to be sure, Twitter does remove some posts. Um, but I think as a general matter, uh, my sense is that Twitter and other platforms are quite reluctant to remove posts simply based on allegations essentially of defamation. And part of the reason for that is that it's impossible to tell from the face of a post uh, whether whether it's defamatory or not. You'd have to investigate the facts, and often the facts are pretty hard to figure out. Uh, They require a court to do that, a court that has subpoena power, a court that can hear witnesses, and even even courts aren't really great at, at resolving libel cases. Um, uh, what's more, if Twitter were to say, we're going to delete this post because we think it says false things about uh, Joe Scarborough, then it'll be inundated with millions of requests from people who say, well, um, these tweets are saying false things about us. You should delete them, too. I don't think Twitter wants to be in a position where it's making decisions about who is right and who is wrong in some controversy about who did what to whom. Um, uh, posts about something like coronavirus and such there, uh, there's still some uh, a lot of complexity about that, and I think there's a lot of danger in service providers saying, "Here's the truth about coronavirus, and that's false," because that one of the things often people don't really know what the truth is. But at least that's a fairly limited universe of of, um, uh, of matters that they have to they have to resolve. So they could say, "Okay, here is a list of particular hoaxes about or things we think are hoaxes about coronavirus or just falsehoods about coronavirus." We're going to uh, delete them. Again, I'm not sure it's a good idea for them to do that, but it's relatively manageable. Whereas if they get into the business of trying to delete posts simply because someone says they're libelous, then there is no list of here are all the false things that are said about anybody uh, that have to investigate again each one of them. Let's say Joe Scarborough was was not an MSNBC host. Let's say he was an ordinary citizen. Is there any way for him to protect against a post like that, a private citizen? Well, as a general matter, the answer is libel law, and you could sue the person who's doing the post. Now, it's a little bit more complicated when the person who's doing the posting is a high government official or the president, in part because there are various immunities that libel law provides for uh, speech by government officials within the scope of their duties. Uh, so it's an interesting question how that would apply. But in a typical situation, if uh, uh, you think that I've libeled you, you can sue me. Uh, of course, it's an expensive and difficult proposition, but that's what our legal system provides for. You can sue me, and then you can get maybe damages against me. You might be able to, in most states, get an order ordering me to take down uh, the post. And many service providers, I believe including Twitter, have a policy that if they actually get a court order, not a court ordering them to take it down because they don't have an obligation to take it down, but a court order ordering somebody to take something down is libelous then they'll assist in that by deleting it themselves if the, if the author doesn't delete it. Because then their theory is, look, a court has already figured out that this is libelous. There are problems with that. I've been doing a lot of research on the subject, and a lot of the orders that are submitted to various service providers are actually fraudulent. Some are forged. Um, uh, there's always difficulties when you uh, – when uh, 
third parties like Twitter decide to go along with court orders to which they weren't parties. Uh, but in any event, that's the kind of system that we have right now. If you if uh, you think that I libeled you in a tweet and you just email Twitter and say, Wallach has been libeling me, I don't think that Twitter uh, would say, okay, fine, we'll investigate who's telling the truth here. The executive order seems to be pushing the FCC to issue rules under Section 230. One of the things that it contemplates, at least the draft that I have seen, is essentially having the Secretary of Commerce file a petition for rulemaking with the FCC asking that they interpret Section 230 in a way that limits service providers' ability to block certain content. It's not clear that the FCC has the regulatory authority to try to interpret Section 230 that way. And in any event, it seems to me that the section is pretty clear in allowing service providers to block whatever content they find objectionable. So I don't think that that's going to go anywhere. But at this point, of course, the call is to ask the FCC to do something. Certainly, the president is entitled to ask the FCC to do something. The question is, what can the FCC do and what will it do? In the midst of this, on Wednesday, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals rejected claims that Twitter, Facebook, Apple, and Google conspired to suppress conservative views online. Tell us about that decision. Even in the absence of Section 230, there's no legal rule that requires service providers to be fair in what they allow and what they don't allow. Just like there's no legal rule that requires a bookstore to be even-handed in the books that it decides to sell or not. So that was the problem that the plaintiffs there faced. They claimed that social media companies generally were discriminating against them because of their conservative political views. But what's illegal about that? Well, first they said this violates the First Amendment. No, said the court. First Amendment binds the government. It doesn't bind private social media companies, however important and powerful they might be. First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. Fourteenth Amendment applies that to states. And by extension to local governments, nothing applies that, nothing in the Constitution applies that to, to private entities. Second, they said, well, this is a violation of antitrust law because there's this conspiracy. And the court said they've given no evidence of a conspiracy. They've given no evidence of anti-competitive agreements. It's true that service providers do try to delete certain kinds of material that they find offensive. But that doesn't show that this is a, a, a antitrust violation. Just to give an analogy, a lot of newspapers have a policy of not publishing vulgarities. But that doesn't mean because it's, that it's a conspiracy among them, even though a lot have it. It's just part of a shared culture. Then the third argument was D.C. law uh, bans discrimination in places of public accommodation based on political affiliation. And they said, aha, these uh, service providers are places of public accommodation. They're discriminating against us because of our conservative views. But uh, the D.C. Circuit said, well, if you look at what D.C. courts have said about the statute, they said it applies to bricks and mortar businesses, to places, to physical places, not just uh, virtual entities like perhaps like, uh, um, like organizations or an online entity. And in this, the D.C. Circuit said we're supposed to follow D.C. law. And that's what D.C. courts, including D.C.'s high court, have said. Um, now, um, uh, uh, there's another reason, by the way, that uh, the plaintiffs uh, 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 didn't have a case under this, the, 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 um, under the statute. Uh, the D.C. Circuit didn't talk about it, but uh, uh, it could have equally easily decided on, this, on that, uh, this basis. Though D.C. is one of the few places that actually bans public accommodation discrimination based on political affiliation, the statute specifically defines political affiliation as party affiliation. So discriminating even in a bricks-and-mortar place based on a person's 
political beliefs generally, ideological views, is not prohibited by the law. It's only discrimination based on uh, uh, party affiliation. So, for example, excluding someone because they're a Republican or a Democrat or a socialist or a libertarian. Um, so, in any event, for all these reasons, the court didn't even have to get to Section 230, which I think would, in any event, have provided immunity for social media platforms, because the court says, look, uh, it's just not illegal in the first instance. There's just no legal rule that that requires social media platforms to be even-handed or non-discriminatory based on politics. This was a unanimous decision. The lawyer for Freedom Watch says that he's going to appeal this to ask for an on-bank hearing or to the Supreme Court. Is this the kind of case that might appeal to an on-bank hearing? Is there enough controversy in it? Uh, No. Uh, I, I think it's extremely unlikely that the D.C. Circuit will rehear it in bank. And uh, bank rehearings are very rare, in part because the, the uh, judges don't want to spend extra time of the whole court on something that a three-judge panel had already resolved. Um, uh, they're particularly rare when the panel is unanimous, and they hear the panel with some liberal members, some, uh, at least I think a liberal member, and a couple of conservative members, um, so I think it's unlikely that some judges off the panel will say, oh, no, 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 this is so clearly wrong, we have to take it in bank. There's no real disagreement uh, within D.C. Circuit's decisions or between the D.C. Circuit and other circuit courts on this point. In fact, similar claims had been brought before and have been pretty much unanimously rejected by all the courts that have, that have considered them. Uh, so I don't see this going to the D.C. Circuit and Bank. I don't see this going to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think the panel decision was clearly correct, and I don't think other courts are going to be, or other courts, other judges are going to be inclined to take the, to take time to, to try to reconsider the matter. There's a whole separate question of what the law ought to be, uh, and in particular whether Congress should enact, say, some statute that requires social media platforms to be kind of like the phone company, a common carriers that uh, um, uh, are even-handed in the sense that, that, that they uh, allow all speech or at least perhaps don't impose viewpoint-based rules. It's an interesting question whether Congress ought to do it. And then there's an interesting question as to whether Congress could do it consistently with the First Amendment. Should the platforms have the same First Amendment? Let's say to... Uh, um, uh, decide to run or not run things uh, uh, based on ideology, or should they be treated like, let's say, cable television systems where the Supreme Court had said it's okay to impose content-neutral requirements of kind of common carriage, not exactly on uh, on uh, cable television uh, um, uh, systems, cable operators. Uh, it's an interesting question, but again, that would require statutory change. Uh, the current legal rules uh, are pretty clear that social media platforms do indeed are indeed entitled to decide, like most businesses, what kind of speech to tolerate on their premises and uh, what kind not. Thanks, Eugene. That's Eugene Volk of UCLA Law School. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour. With about five months until Election Day, is voting by mail hanging by a thread in some states? And Trump's Twitter war on Twitter. Record numbers of Americans are expected to vote by mail in the November elections in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Time is short. Election officials have just weeks left to ensure that their states are set up to handle a surge of mail-in votes. 
but their funding is caught up in a political battle. President Trump says that mail-in voting leads to fraud. They'll be grabbing them from mailboxes. They'll even be printing them. They'll use the same paper, the same machines, and they'll be printing ballots illegally. And they'll be sending them in by the hundreds of thousands, and nobody's going to know the difference. We can't do that. While House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says mail-in voting is essential to protect the nation's health, and the federal government should provide funding for it. That would be $3.6 billion, a small price to pay for our democracy and the good health of Americans going to the polls. Joining me is election law expert Richard Brafalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. So, Rich, it's about five months until Election Day. What would state or local officials have to do now to allow voting by mail in November? Well, there's a mixture of legal and practical things that they have to do. The legal issues remain in those states that still require some kind of excuse for voting, such as a disability or an illness or being away. Most states no longer require that, and a number of states were forced to suspend that by the courts during the primary season this year. But I think there are still a number of states where the law on the books, at least for now, says you need to have an actual illness or disability rather than just the presence of the COVID pandemic itself. So that's kind of one set of issues is the, the legal authority to allow basically nearly all people to vote by mail. In the other states, and this is most of the states now, it is legal for people to vote by mail without having to have an excuse. The issues are really practical. Getting the ballots designed, because a mail-in ballot will look different from the ballot you see on a voting machine. Getting them printed, getting the envelopes, getting them stuffed, getting the machines that you need to count mail-in ballots, which are different from the machines that are normally used to count ballots that are cast at a polling place. Some states have maybe even jumped over a step. In some states, you may be eligible to vote by mail, but you may have to fill out an application. So what's the process for getting those applications to people and getting those applications back to the county clerk or whoever it is is in charge of voting locally? So vote by mail is somewhat more complicated. There are more steps to it than traditional polling place voting. And just the mechanics of it are going to be different. A number of states have done it very successfully, but they transition to it over several election cycles. And basically what's going to happen is there are a lot of states where that transition is going to have to be very fast. What about the money it takes to do all this? It all takes money. New machinery, new supplies, new printing. This is all going to take money. Is any of that money coming from the federal government? The federal government in one of the coronavirus response laws put in some money. But most people in the election administration field think that the money that they provided was maybe a fifth to a fourth of what it's going to cost, that it was just really a relatively modest sum. I mean, we're talking probably in the, I'd say the low billions, the one or two billion dollars nationwide. And I think the money in the federal aid package was in the low hundreds of millions. So there's a gap there. And this is a time when both states and local governments are financially strapped. You could say they're always financially strapped, but it's much worse now, partly due to the increased expenses states and local governments have had to incur in responding to COVID-19, but maybe even more so due to the revenue losses. There's been huge drops in you know, sales tax payments and state income tax payments, and just the financial hit on the states and locals has been substantial. And at the same time, they're going to have to incur these new expenses. That makes it sound like there won't be mail-in voting in a lot of places, particularly poorer states. I don't want to say that. I think they're scrambling to do it. And I just think there's going to be a lot of decisions that have to be made by state election administrators, local election administrators, local budget officers about how to do it. I think it's too early to be negative, but I think it's appropriate to be worried. 
Why is the problem especially serious in the battleground states of Wisconsin and North Carolina? Well, those are two states which have not had a tradition of absentee voting or vote by mail. I mean, basically in a lot of states, particularly in the West, it's either been almost everybody votes that way or a significant fraction of people have been voting that way. These are two states where people voted the traditional way, which is in person on election day. And so part of it is they have to make a bigger shift. And then you do have the fact that these have divided state governments. And as we all know, the president and Republicans following the president have been very hostile to vote by mail. This is a new development. Until fairly recently, vote by mail was not seen as a partisan issue. And indeed, there are many Republican secretaries of state in the states where they're responsible for voting or election administrators who've been very supportive. At least they were until very recently. They're very supportive of vote by mail. And there's no evidence that vote by mail has a partisan tilt in in practice. All kinds of people use it. Nonetheless, the issue has become uh, a partisan one. And you can see that that might lead to some resistance in funding for it, even in a state where the chief elections officer might be a Democrat, but the money's got to come from a a Republican legislature. President Trump tweeted this on Tuesday. There is no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent. Mailboxes will be robbed. Ballots will be forged and even illegally printed out and fraudulently signed. How much of that is based in fact, and how much is fiction? Well, I think just about none of it is based in fact. I mean, there are studies. There are about five states that have been heavily using mail-in ballots for the last decade. And I won't say that there's no fraud ever, but the amount of fraud that there is is actually quite minor, really, really minor. And there's certainly no evidence that that's had an impact on the elections. I mean, as people have pointed out, President Trump has been voting by mail for years, as have many people in his administration. In the last presidential election, I think something like 20% of the country was voting by mail and higher in certain states. So it's not like this is a brand new thing. It definitely is going to have to be scaled up in a lot of places where it hasn't been common before. But I mean, there are checks on fraud. There are signature verification requirements. You can, in effect, make sure that there are guarantees against the ballots being forged. It's appropriate to worry in all situations about the possibility of misconduct. But there's not much evidence that this has, in fact, been a big issue. Trump threatened to withhold federal grants from Michigan and Nevada if they sent out absentee ballots. Is that an empty threat, or can he actually do that? It's not clear what legal leverage he thought he had when he made those statements. Indeed, those statements themselves had a bunch of mistakes in them. I think at least in Michigan, as I recall, it was the Secretary of State there was not sending out ballots. She was sending out applications, which is the first step. And I think that was true in Nevada as well. They were basically making the first step easier for people, not the ballots themselves. And indeed, some people might choose to actually vote in person. So first thing, there was a mischaracterization of what they were doing. More generally, I don't think there is any provision in the law that actually would allow him to do that. Do most states have the rules in place for, you know, how they're going to mail them out, how they're going to be counted? Or are the rules in place or are they in flux in some places? Um, I think it's less about the rules, although that is, a, I mean, I think some of the rules may be changing. I mean, this whole question about requesting applications versus applications being sent, maybe requesting ballots versus Governor Newsom in California said he's sending ballots to everybody. So there may, that, some of that may be um, uh, in flux. I think the bigger issue uh, is the practical one of literally having the getting the, the ballots designed, printed, getting the machinery, getting the envelopes, figuring out, indeed, some question might be as to whether or not the postage is paid by the, the government or people are going to be required to post postage. There's litigation on that. 
um, that there's there are a lot of kind of um, I would call them kind of implementation issues. Some of which might be require legal changes. Some of them might are just about questions of practice. Let's turn to a decision by the Texas Supreme Court on Wednesday. The court blocked a push to expand vote by mail to registered voters during the pandemic, saying lack of immunity to the coronavirus doesn't count as a disability. And then there's also a federal judge's ruling in that state. There's been two tracks of litigation in Texas. And they mentioned earlier, uh, a number of states use what is so-called excused absentee voting or excuse vote by mail. You can only vote by mail uh, obtain an absentee ballot if you fall into a, a certain category of excuses. Uh, one of the common ones is illness um, or disability. And so one question is, uh, obviously, if you have coronavirus, you have a disability. But what if given, what if you're afraid that you're going to get it? Uh, the, what is the possibility of getting it given that there is community transmission and there is no vaccine? And so, for example, in New York, Governor Cuomo, one of his executive orders, in effect, took the New York State definition of, of illness or disability, I forget which one, and said, that's going to include the possibility of getting coronavirus when it is in community transmission. That was the argument that was being made in Texas by the litigants there, that the, that the two lower Texas courts, the trial court and the, and the intermediate court of appeals, agreed that under Texas law, you could define um, disability to include the lack of immunity to coronavirus. And that was where the Texas Supreme Court said, no, 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 you can't do that. That's pushing it too far. Uh, so that that excuse, that, that way of treating, treating kind of the danger of getting or the, 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 the risk of getting coronavirus if you go to a polling place, that that was not, the court decided that was not enough to count as a disability. The Texas federal court ruled that voters afraid of catching the coronavirus can request absentee ballots. Right. So that's a second, that's a different track. And I think um, that I think is going to be, will go up to the, the, the U.S. Court of Appeals, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, for them to decide uh, that. But yeah, uh, so as is often the case in our system with voting, you can have these the litigation and it can run through two different, both state courts and federal courts. The Supreme Court has handled a, a voting issue recently in Wisconsin, and they've handled a lot of different voting issues over the years. Is the court conservative and careful about extending voting rights? Or- That's a good way to put it. I think one way you could see is that the court majority is nervous about changing the rules, um, uh, about having lower courts say, uh, in light of an emergency or in light of proven consequences of certain rules, the rules need to be changed in order to make sure that the rights are available for everybody. In other words, if you look at this as a, as a, as a tension between, uh, you know, adhering strictly to the rules that are in place versus uh, uh, using the rules in a way that, ex- that makes the franchise as available as possible to people who are qualified to vote, the majority has been, is very reluctant to see departures from the rules. Now, part of what happened with that Wisconsin case that you referred to back in April is that rule change was literally on the eve of the election. Uh, and the court has over the last decade or so, based on a case called Purcell, and it's now called the Purcell Principle, has basically said, we are, we are not going to, we, we're going to discourage the lower federal courts from changing the election rules on the eve of the election. Now, what's the eve of the election may be a little variable. Now, the one in Wisconsin really was on the eve of the election uh, or within a week before the election. 
if some of these rules are changed now, uh, or say in June for the for the November election, it's not clear that the Purcell principle would kick in because one of their concerns was that that election administrators and voters would be confused as to what the rules are. So a rule change that put into place some months before the election that might get a different response. Is it certain that the more states that have mail-in voting, the slower the returns are going to be on Election Day? That is likely. I mean, certainly the ballots, uh, again, one question is what's the the deadline for submitting your ballot? Um, And that has some states require that the ballot be received by Election Day. Uh, Other states require only that it be postmarked by Election Day. So if the requirement is a postmarking requirement, and then sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll accompany that one with, but not later than X number of days um, after the election, maybe six days or a week after. Uh, but if that's the case, uh, yeah, ballots are going to be coming in for quite some time. Now, much will depend on how close the election is. But, yeah, it could vary. I mean, certainly states like California and Washington State, which have been heavy users of uh, votes by mail, they're still counting the votes days and days later. Thanks, Rich. That's Richard Brafalt, professor at Columbia Law School. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.